1789, in a letter to uh, one of his friends, one of the founding fathers of the United States, uh, Benjamin Franklin, wrote what are now very, very famous words. He wrote to his friend this. He said, There is nothing, dear friend, in this world that is certain except death and taxes. There's nothing in this world that's certain except death and taxes. Well, this evening, what I want us to do, or what I I want is to throw into that mix another inevitability, okay? To throw out there, we've got death and taxes, but to throw out another certainty. Because you see, what what God's word makes clear is that this earth where we live, this world we inhabit, that one day it will with certainty end. That this life that we are so familiar with, this cycle of birth followed by death, one day that will inevitably cease. And isn't that a thought? You know, you and I, every single person in here, one day we are going to experience a new type of existence. And every single one of us is going to experience a new place of existence. And that that there is absolutely and utterly and entirely sure. Well... Tonight, as we uh, conclude our sermon series, what's the name of our sermon series? Did you see that? It is Return. Remember that. Return. A study in the book of Zechariah. Well, as we conclude the sermon series tonight, what our prophet does for us here is he really kind of unfolds or unpacks something of what that new life is going to entail. So what we get in this latter part of Zechariah is an insight, a kind of glimpse of the activity or the events that are going to accompany the very end of the world. So... What I suggest just now, given the gravity of the topic that we are going to consider this evening, what I suggest we do is pray. Let's ask God for guidance with us. Lord in heaven, how weak we are, how small we are, how feeble we are, and yet tonight we come before you a great God, an awesome and eternal and sovereign God. And we know that you have the whole world in your hand. We know that this earth will pass away. We know that you have a future mapped out. A day is set in your calendar. Lord, we pray that tonight as we uh, study scripture, we pray that we would hear from you. We pray that you would be gracious uh, to us, your people. And we pray that we would understand more about this, that we might praise you as you, O God, deserve to be praised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you haven't done so, please turn back with me to Zechariah chapter 14. It is from verse 12. Although we read from verse 6, it is from verse 12 to the end of the chapter that we're considering tonight. First of all, let's consider something of the terror at the end of the world. The terror at the end of the world. Last time, 
Uh, we were in Zechariah, so that's a couple of weeks ago. We saw something of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not what we looked at? The parousia, Christ's great return. We thought about what this meant for the cosmos. We saw what this meant for the people of God. And I don't know about you, but I found it stirring stuff. You know, to think about the, the hope that's there for the people of God, the salvation that we will see when Christ, when Christ returns. But of course, there is another side. There's a flip side to all of this, isn't there? Like, yes, Christ Jesus is going to return. And on that day, yes, he, he is the great shepherd, the good shepherd. He's going to usher his people into their eternal home. What else will he do? On his return, he will also identify, separate, and cast out the goats. And it's those people, it's the unbelieving world that Zechariah has in focus at this point. So, friends, what, what I want to do just now in this first heading is just to highlight here four aspects we see about hell. Four things that we are told in Scripture here about the reality of hell. First of all, see here that people will be in hell, they will be plagued. I'm not a man from a scary movies at all. I don't know if, if you are. I'm not a man from horror films at all. And so because of, of that, I, I, I'm fairly repulsed, if you'll allow that, by verse 12. Do you see it? It speaks of a, a plague that will come, a plague that will afflict the unbelieving one. Look at it. You see their flesh, their eyes, their tongues rot in their head. I mean, it's, it's absolutely horrific. Now, isn't it true that we in the church, we do one of two things. We either sideline hell, and we just don't think about it, and we do not talk about hell, or the other thing that we can do is that we soften hell. Isn't that true? That we can think of it just quite simply as a place, okay, hell is somewhere where the ungodly go, and clearly in Scripture, you know, we think, okay, it's not a nice place, you know, it's a pretty unpleasant place, but we in it, don't we? We soften it. And I ask you, does that match up with what you've got here? You know, look at a place of rotting eyes and flesh. Friends, do, do you see the, the truth of this? Do you see the truth of what Jesus said about that place? There will be wailing, there will be gnashing of teeth. Why? Because it isn't just unpleasant. I mean, it is a place of indescribable pain. The second thing we see is that people there in hell will be panicked. They will be plagued, but they will be panicked. Would you do this with me? Would you look at the very next verse? Look at verse 13. It says, On that day men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Now, come on. You know, as well as I do, that there is nothing worse, is there, than that, than a great panic, than a moment of true anxiety. 
Like you've experienced that, haven't you? You know, somebody gives you terrible words, there's a diagnosis or something like that, or you're out in public with, and you can't account for one of your children just for a moment, and there's that rush of uh, fear, isn't there? There's that horrible moment of true and utter anxiety. And do you see what's been said here? That horrific feeling of panic. That is the eternal reality of hell. We experience that in hell consistently. But wait a minute, look at this. I want you to see what the panic leads to. Look what verse 13 goes on to say. Look at it. Look at it. Verse 13. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with this great panic. And what will happen? Each man will attack each other. They will be panicked and they will attack each other. Now, wait a minute. What? Come on, think. Scope of scripture. Spectrum of scripture. What does that mean? you think? They panic, they attack each other. Judges 7. You do know it. Judges 7. You know the story of Gideon. Do you not? You know the story, don't you? Gideon charges into the Midianite camp. And what happens? The Midianites, are, they're straight into the sense of anxiety and panic. And what do they do? They're panicked. They draw their swords and they attack who? They attack each other. Do you see that, that hell is that? But to the nth degree, you have personal pain in hell. But you also have this relational ruin. And then, see thirdly, that in hell, people will be plundered. They will be plundered. I, I loved that moment this morning in church. Uh, my mum, my mum was in church this morning, and I just realised what was happening as I was preaching. Uh, my mum had come down to, to London with a group of her cronies and a group of her friends for a shopping spree, you know. And what happens? She brings them along to church, and her son gets up and preaches on what? On the dangers of materialism. <laughs> the perils of materialism. What a special moment that was for our family. It's true though, isn't it? Like not necessarily for my mum, but people live for stuff. They live for things. Like the people in your life, isn't that the case? They they live for their cars, maybe. They live for their clothes. They live for their houses and doing them up and refurbishing them and moving into a bigger one. Well, we see here the reality that awaits for people like that. Would you look at verse 14? The wealth of all these nations will be collected. Come on, do you do? I mean, do you see what that means? It means, friends, that quite frankly, your possessions, our possessions, ultimately, from an eternal perspective, what are they? They are worthless. From an eternal perspective, they do not mean a thing. They do not last. See, people are going to die. And there, they will realize that their material concerns were absolutely meaningless. In fact, what are we learning here? Not only that, we're learning that should people actually live to see the coming of Jesus Christ, what's going to happen at that moment? 
Even should they see that happen, should they live to that moment, there and then, the riches, everything, plucked from their hands. Don't you find it stark? Like really, and truly, isn't it? I mean, look at us, look where we live. This Western world does not see that at all. Like it doesn't even for a split second realize the truth of it. But what is the truth? The wealth of all the nations will be collected. People will be left with nothing. And then the fourth thing I said was four, and this is the most awful. In hell, people will also be parched. They will be, what did we say? Plagued, panicked, plundered. They will be parsed. Do this. Would you let your eye just fall down the page? Right down to verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, For those effectively in hell, there shall be no rain. No rain. No rain. What does that mean? Well, obviously, it's talking more than just (laughs) that in hell there will not be the physical reality of rainfall. It's not saying that. No, think about it. I mean, come on. We know that all the way throughout Scripture, rain is an image. Rain is a metaphor for what? For the spiritual blessing of God. So so do, do you see what's been said? Do you see the ultimate disaster of hell? Listen to me. There shall be no grace in that place. There shall be no grace in that place. There will be judgment. And there will be anger. But there shall be no spiritual blessing. There shall be no grace. There shall be no rain. Would you just think about the rich man and Lazarus? I mean, what does he do? He's in hell and he cries out. What does he want? Oh, just send Lazarus just to dip his finger in the water. So can I just have a drip of this? Do you see why? It was dry. There was no rain. There was no blessing. Now, friends, you might tonight, you might think, why, this is hard. This is no Christmas message. And it is hard, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is, this is tough. It's, it's tough to read, it's tough to hear, it's tough to preach. But wait a minute, I mean, do you see what it means for us in here? I mean, of course, look, if you are someone who is, who is not a Christian, and someone who is unrepentant of their sin, then yeah, yeah, surely you see here a warning from God. But I don't want to speak to you. I want to speak to the Christian. Do you see what you've got in front of you? In these four things? Do you see what has been done for you? Do you see that your Lord went through this for you? I mean, what is it the Apostles' Creed says? It says that Jesus was crucified, that he died, he was buried, and he descended into hell. Now, 
We know that that is not the literal reality, but what is it saying? It's saying that, that Jesus on the cross in his death, he experienced those spiritual realities. He did. That Jesus Christ was plagued. And plagued how? He was plagued by your sin. That Jesus Christ was panicked. Was that not the reality of Gethsemane? That Jesus Christ knew that he was plundered of his very garments, that they were gambled away by the Roman soldiers. And friend, was Jesus not parched? Was it not dry on the cross? What did he cry out into the darkness of Calvary? Was it not the same as the rich man? Did he not say, I thirst, I thirst. Do you see it? He went through this. He went through the drought. He went through the dryness of hell. And he did so. Why? Because he loves you. He did it for you. We should look at this. And this reality Friends, it shouldn't just fill us with some sort of fear, some sort of dread or horror. This, this should lead us to praise our God. We see the terror at the end of the world. Secondly, note with me that we see the worship at the end of the world. The worship at the end of the world. Now, as we get into the real depths of uh, Zechariah 14, we see that they are, there are going to be some pretty seismic events at the end of the world, right? I mean, come on. We were, last time we saw this massive battle with evil. Tonight we see the judgment of God. Pretty massive events here. Maybe because of that, we're sort of sitting there thinking, are there going to be any survivors to this? Are there? Well, here, the next thing we see in this chapter is not only that there are going to be survivors, but we actually see what the survivors are going to do. On that day, they are going to worship. I just want us to think about that idea, the worship that's engaged in the the last day. So, I'll just ask a few questions here. Okay, first of all, who is it that engages in worship? Who is it that engages in worship? You're going to have to help me with this. Um, because I, for the whole week, I've been trying to think of uh, this TV advert, <laughs> and I've, I've nearly got it, you know, and I've been asking people, and I've been thinking about it, and I've been online, and I cannot find the TV advert at all. So, when I describe it, at the end of the service, will somebody put me out of my misery, okay? Like, I think it's maybe... Uh, the Plusnet, one of the Plusnet adverts, you know, that sort of Yorkshire uh, TV, whatever it's phone company, something like that. Could not, might not be that. Uh, so put me out of my misery later on. But in the advert, there's a guy, and he's walking along the street. You know, he's just talking to the TV camera, just walking along the street. And then all of a sudden, a couple of people just appear beside him. And they're, they join in with him walking along the street. And then some more people 
they suddenly appear out of here and they also join in and he's walking with more people and eventually by the end of the advert here's the guy who was by himself is now at the head of a sort of massive almost like a big festival a big celebration of people sort of singing and dancing as they're walking along the street okay so you put me out of my misery later on with what, what that advert is but hang on a second that's what we've got here in Zechariah now what I'm going to do is just test you for a moment okay if you look at verse 16, do you recognize the language? Think scripturally about verse 16. Do you recognize the language? Look at this. It says, verse 16, the survivors will go up year after year to worship. So does that idea, is that, like the idea of going up to worship, does it sound familiar? Well, what did Marianne lead us in singing earlier on? Psalm 122. What's that? Psalm 122. It's one of the songs of a saint. It's one of the songs that the people of Israel would sing as they go up to Jerusalem to worship. Right? Now, hang on. Who is it here, though, that is going up to worship? Look at verse 16. Is it the people of Israel? Look at it. Then the survivors from all nations will go up. Friends, I'm asking you, do you see what we've got there? That is the Plosne advert. Isn't it though? Isn't it? What we're seeing is that on the last day, not only will the representatives of the people of Israel go up to worship, they will be joined by who? Representatives, Christians from Brazil. And then... That group will swell and they'll be joined by Christians from Scotland and Christians from England and Christians from Japan and South Korea. They'll all go up together. Do you see it? There will be this multicolored multitudes going up, walking, singing and dancing and praising, going up to worship. But then we've got to ask, who is it that shall be worshipped? Look at verse 16. Is it God? Well, yes, it is God. But what exactly does it say? Look at this. Think about the language. They will worship the King, the Lord Almighty. And I ask you the same question. Does that sound familiar? What did Marianne just lead us in singing? Psalm 24. What does it say in Psalm 24? Who can the sovereign be? The Lord Almighty, He is King. Do you see what that is? It's the exact same language. I'll tell you what it is. It is the full name of the Lord. On that day, we will all, as Christians, go up to worship the Christ, the eternal King. And then the last question we have to ask about this worship is how are we going to do it? How will that worship be done? And I tell you this, the answer to that question is so strange. I mean, it's so unusual here. Look at verse 16. How are you going to worship God on that last day? You are going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Have you heard that before? About your future, the last day going up to heaven? That you're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Have you heard that before? Does it seem a bit strange? What, what, what was it? What was the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was 
It's also called the Festival of Booths, if you like. Now, it's an old covenant festival. So you had the people of Israel, they spent a whole week rejoicing in God. Now, get this. This is a festival. Ready for this? This is what they had to do in the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. You had to build a tent. <laughs> or you had to build a booth. And you had to go and live in it. For a week. Do you see why, though? You had to do that if you were a child of Israel to remember the wilderness. To remember what God had done in taking you out of Egypt and into the promised land. Does the penny drop? Do you see why we shall do that on the last day? We will see our Saviour and we will praise Him for the deliverance that He has won for us. He has taken us, He has rescued out of sin. And we will praise Him that He has taken us into the final and ultimate promised land. And not just that, we will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because on that very moment, the last day, we will see the ultimate of Revelation 21. When it says what? God says on that day, I will be with you. What does He say though exactly? On that day, I will tabernacle with my people. Isn't it lovely? The world will end. There will be darkness. But we're going to march. You're going to march. We're all going to march as Christians. And we are going to go up and worship our covenant God. So we see the terror at the end of the world. We see the worship that we're going to engage in at the end of the world. Third thing, last thing. We see here the holiness at the end of the world. It's getting towards that time of year, I think, where people start to think about holidays, isn't it? I don't necessarily mean Christmas holidays, although I'm sure that's on people's minds as well. But isn't it the case that some people get into sort of January, maybe, and they start thinking about sort of an Easter holiday or a summer holiday, and they'll maybe book somewhere new, somewhere exciting, somewhere they've never been before, and they sort of think, oh, I wonder what that new place will be like. And it gets them through the long sort of January and February nights. You know, what will that new place be like? Now, I said this to you last time in Zechariah. I'll say it again. Are you not a little bit curious? You know, we're talking about a new place. We're talking about the place that you will dwell in for eternity. Are you not interested in what heaven shall be like? <laughs> Well, as Zechariah closes his book, he shows us the atmosphere of heaven. And he shows us that heaven fundamentally and primarily is a place of holiness. Would you look at this with me? Look at verse 20. And then scratch your heads. (laughs) Look at verse 20. On that day, holy... To the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. <laughs> Holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. And uh, we ask, don't we, surely, what on earth does that mean? Okay, come on. Let's think about this. 
Let's go back a little bit, Zechariah. Do you remember one of the visions where Joshua had to go into the heavenly courts? Do you remember that? Do you remember the high priest Joshua went in? And do you remember how he was dressed? How was he dressed? He was dressed in the garments. They were filthy, but he was dressed in the garments of the high priest. Do you remember that? Now, wait a minute. Come on. What did the high priest wear? So he had a breastplate across his shoulders here. What else did he wear? You know, some big, elaborate gown and garments, right? What else did the high priest wear? And we're getting to the point. He wore a turban on his head. Here's the thing. What was inscribed in the turban? Holy to the Lord. We're seeing here that what on earth was reserved for the one consecrated man, the high priest, in heaven. It can be inscribed and written on everyone and everything, even the trappings of the animals, such as the purity, such as the consecration, such as the holiness of the place. Do you see it? And see that idea that heaven is holy, it is just reinforced by what's said next. Look at how verse 20 goes on. Look at this. The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like sacred bowls. Do you see it? Such as the sort of pervasive, incredible holiness of heaven that even what is used to eat is going to be as consecrated, as holy as the stuff used in the altars and the worship. Do you see it? If you're a Christian tonight, your future home the place where you shall dwell it is a place of extensive and entire and beautiful and universal holiness. And I think that is marvelous. Because do you see what it means? It means on that very last day, as we enter into heaven, it means that God's redemptive plan will have been fulfilled. It will all come to the climax there and then. Friends, what, what do we learn in Ephesians 1? We learn that God chose you. He chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that you should be holy. You should be holy and blameless. And don't you see there, as we enter into holiness as Christians, that's how it shall be. We shall be perfectly holy. We won't have to worry and be burdened by, by our sinfulness anymore. We won't have to worry about our inadequacy and our weaknesses anymore. We're going to be surrounded by holiness. We are going to be immersed in holiness. We are going to be illuminated by holiness. And we shall worship a holy God. We shall be as God always intended us to be. But let's end this with a reminder of through whom this holiness comes. Look at the last verse of the book. And we scratch our heads. 
He says, on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. Now get this. Get it, please. That word Canaanite could very much equally be translated trader. means the same thing. In heaven there will be no corrupt merchant. Where does that take you in your mind? There will be no trader in the house of the Lord. Where does it take you? Doesn't it push you on? To Matthew chapter 21, to Jesus overturning the tables of the traders and the merchant in the temple, right? Isn't that it? Don't you see that that there is a picture of what our Lord has done for us in here? What has he done? He has cleansed the house of God. Hasn't he? Hasn't he? Hasn't the Lord Jesus Christ cleansed us from our sin, from our corruption, from the traders, from the iniquity in our heart? Don't you see? It's through Him that all of this holiness shall come. And so in advance of this new world, surely it is He that we praise. Isn't it? Can I ask you, friends, are you doing that tonight? I mean, really and truly, this evening, are you praising Jesus Christ? Are you in your heart? Are you? Do you see who he is? Who can this sovereign be? Who is he? Come on, the scope of Zechariah. Who is he? Is he not the rider amongst the myrtle trees? Is he not? Is he not the man with the measuring line? in his hand is he not the angel of the Lord who redressed Joshua is he not the personification of the olive trees is he not the covering that basket is he not the branch that will rule is he not the rider on the donkey is he not the good shepherd is he not the one pierced for sin is he not the fountain of cleansing who can the sovereign be he is the Lord almighty he is king And friends, we should worship him now. And we should seek that holiness now. And we should do it until what happens, friends? Until our eyes behold the glory. Until the skies move to the clouds part. Until what do we see? Until we see our Lord do what? We see our Lord return.